Welcome to The Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm Roger Woodall, founder of the Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sport and music festival. With all events in 2020 grinding to a halt, I'll be bringing people back together, but in a different way. On this week's episode, I'm talking to one of the most courageous individuals I've ever met, Mark Omrod. As a Marine commando on tour in Afghanistan, Mark sustained horrific injuries from an improvised explosive device, resulting in losing both legs and an arm. He was the UK's first triple amputee to survive in the Afghanistan conflict. We talk about his military service, the events leading up to that fateful explosion, and how he powered through adversity to become a gold medalist, motivational speaker, author, and peak performance coach. This episode contains graphic descriptions of severe injuries that can be tough to hear, but Mark has such an inspirational story to tell, I think everyone will take something away from this. Here's the man himself, the incredible Mr. Mark Omrod. Mark, how you doing, buddy? I am all good, my friend. How are you? Nice. Very good, mate. Really looking forward to this episode. Really can't wait for this. I appreciate you coming on, mate. Pleasure. Good. Right, let's get cracking. Let's go all the way back. Tell me how you got into the Royal Marines. So I live in Plymouth, which, if you don't know, is a very military heavy city we've got a a giant naval base here we've got a couple of army bases we have a couple of royal marines bases so the only thing i think we don't have actually is raf so growing up you know i was around the military all the time i also had a lot of friends when i was in school who we, we although we grew up together in school they were at least two years above me. So, you know, they came to the end of their school time before I did. And a lot of them joined the army straight out of school. Not because, you know, they didn't get good grades or they couldn't do anything else. I don't even think because we live in a city that's military heavy. It just, it's the path they went down. And, you know, these guys were going out and living in Germany Every time they came home on leave, they had new cars and they were boozing on the weekends. And I'm like 14 years old at this time, right? And I'm looking at my friends off having these adventures and I'm thinking, that looks like the kind of thing that I could do. You know, I was I was into the, the fitness at that time. I loved being healthy and fit and I, I saw what they were doing and it really appealed to me. So when I was about 15 and a half and I was coming to the end of my schooling, I had this moment, you know, just a moment of clarity where I thought I've got to make a decision now because in less than a year, I'm going to either be in college or on the road to university, or I'm going to be at the start of a career. And I I didn't know which way I wanted to go. So I thought about it for a little while. And then I I thought, you know, I looked at my friends and I looked at my school and I thought, I don't, I don't hate school. I don't hate education or academia, but it doesn't light me up either. Right. So, and I saw my friends off having these adventures and I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to start a career while I'm young enough. I'm going to join the military. I'm going to join the army is what I initially thought. And then I'm going to go off and just develop myself as an individual and see the world. So I went down to the career center. One of my friends who was in the, uh, I think it was called the second tank regiment that were based out in Germany, down to the careers office in Plymouth, spoke to the recruiter, got all the paperwork, because I was under 16, I had to go back and show my parents to get them to sign it. And then when I did, 
my dad told me that I had an uncle who had served in the Royal Marines. Uh, he wasn't an uncle uncle. He was one of those people in your family that you always grew up calling uncle. And he went from a Marine in 22 years to captain and he left. And he only lived 15 miles at the road. So we jumped in the car. I went up to see him. I told him that I wanted to join the army and why I wanted to join and what I saw for my future. And then he told me all about the Royal Marines, you know, and how they were different to the army and the kind of things that he'd achieved in his career and what I could expect to achieve if I went down that road rather than the army road. So I went back to the career center Monday morning. I spoke to the Royal Marines recruiter and, uh, he pulled out the old VHS cassette. He banged it in the telly with a TV VCR combo thing. And I just, I just watched this video and I'm like, what is this? Who are these people? And they were jumping out of planes, right? Either with parachutes or fast roping out of helicopters. They were on speedboats. They had these like house-sized bargains on their back and they're yomping and they're all massive and muscly and they looked like just like they were born fighting, yeah. you know, and they were in the jungle, the Arctic, the desert, the woodland. And I'm like, who are these people? I want to do what these guys are doing. And I'd never heard of them, despite the massive Royal Marines presence yeah. in my city. So I was like, right, so give me the paperwork. So I got the paperwork for that, went back, got it signed, sent it off. You know, a couple months later, finished school, very quickly got the letter to say, we'd like to bring you to do the three-day it was called the Potential Royal Marines course. It's like yeah. a three-day beat-up course. Passed that, fortunately, first time. And then by the time I turned 17, uh, early it was February 2001, I was invited to start Royal Marines training, which was a massive, massive eye-opening experience for me as, as, a, as a boy, yeah. basically, getting thrown into this, this world full of men. 17 years old. That's young, right? Or is that the norm? It's not the norm. Uh, out of 64 men, I was the second youngest there. There was one guy who was about maybe two months younger than I was. But yeah, the, the age is ranged from, you know, an average of 19 to I think 31. Wow. And people come from all over the world. You know, I live in Plymouth. It's, it's yeah. a tiny little city in the Southwest. You know, Exeter is up north to yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? And there was guys from South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, America, all over the UK, all these different accents that I'd never heard before. You know, people were from different cultures and it was just, you know, I, I never mind. I'm always honest about this kind of stuff. It was so overwhelming. Yeah, I bet. Like, and where we do our training is only 45 minutes away from where I live here in Plymouth. Mm. But I, I felt like I was on the other side of the world. Yeah you know, cause I'm thrown in this mixing pot and it, everything goes at 150,000 miles an hour. And it, and it was scary. Was it, was it dog eat dog in there? No, absolutely not. No proper teamwork. Everyone looking after each other. That is, that is what is instilled in you from day one. Yeah. Um, we, we call, we call them oppos, which means friends and the people, you know, to your left and right. And that was one of the things that we got taught was oppo first. So when you finish a, a death march and you're, feet are blistered and you need a drink and you need some food and you want to sit down even though you're feeling that way you look to the left and right and you sort them lads out first yeah. and they'll do exactly the same and everyone looks after each other and it's the way they teach you one of the the values which is unselfishness yeah and what about hierarchy in there how was that being 17 knowing you've got 28 year olds and they're big lumps been around the block probably been to many countries on tour how how was that for you it, it's intimidating i'm not gonna lie you know, it's a 17-year-old from from a small city 
in the Southwest who's never really left that place to be surrounded by these people who have so much more life experience than me was, was really intimidating. And every day I, I remember just getting up and looking around, even when people were ironing in their uniform, I'm looking at people and inside I'm like, how does everyone know what they're supposed to be doing except for me? I'm looking, I'm, you know, he's ironing those creases correctly. He's preparing that kit correctly. And I'm, I'm literally going around asking everyone like, how do I do this? How do I do yeah. that? Cause it was just such a, a baptism by fire, you know, getting thrown in to that environment. So young, you know, I'd only just learned to brush my teeth on my own. Yeah, right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 17, man. That's young. That's amazing. Yeah. What was the, what was it the day to day? Like, was it just training every single day before you went on tour? How, how did it work? Okay. So when you start recruit training, you're thrown into a room for two weeks with everyone else in the, in the troop, this new troop. So for me, there were 64 people. It's one big room, 64 beds, 64 people. And you're taught everything. And I'm not joking, everything from washing your bollocks, where a man will stand naked in front of you and he will show you how to wash your own bollocks, wash your hair. Because then once they've shown you everything, as dumb as it sounds, you never have any excuse. If you mess up and say, well, I didn't know how to wash my bollocks. Yeah. Well, they're like, actually, we showed you. Right. They show you how to shave properly, how to do your boots. How That first two weeks is dedicated. It's called the foundation block. It's dedicated to personal administration. Right. So ironing your creases, looking after your boots, brushing your teeth, packing your bargain, you know, but it's still, you know, you're up till one, two in the morning and then you're getting up again at half past five, six to get thrashed, you know, physically. Wow. Runs. I mean, it's all very different now, but that's how it was back then. And then you move from that two week foundation period to where you start actually learning to slowly to be a soldier. Right. And then... You know, it's broken down into blocks, but you start learning about how to use a weapon, safety. Then you start learning about field craft, about how to survive in the, you know, in basic training in the woodland environment, how to put up a poncho, how to be in the field for a week, how to eat, how to read a map, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it, and it advances and it builds and builds and builds throughout the weeks until you get to the final part, which is called the commando phase, which yep. is what the Royal Marines are famous for where you do the high ropes assault courses, the 30 mile marches to show that you're physically and mentally robust enough to earn a green beret. And you take all of that training to be a soldier at the highest level. And then you just kind of top it off with those physical and mental challenges. Yeah. And your day to day was this, and are you, uh, how does it work? Are you waiting for a phone call to say, right, we're deploying you to Iraq or all different countries? What's the next steps? So when you finish training yeah. and, you, and you've earned your Green Beret, you will go off to a unit. So the Royal Marines, we've got four or five commando in Scotland, 40 commando in Taunton, four two commando in Plymouth here. And then you've got 30 commando in Plymouth, which is headquarters. And then you've got a bunch of other little units. And while you have a degree of, of say in where you go, ultimately they'll send you where they need to fill the billets. So you go to a unit and then you will undergo specialist training. So once you've done, this is what's, this is what I loved about the Royal Marines. So you could be a chef in the Marines. Yep. You can train as a chef. You can train as a sniper. You can train as a driver. You can train as a mortarman. You can train as uh, an air crewman, but you always, when you go on operations can go back to being a soldier. Whereas you're in the army, if you're a chef, that's it. You probably only pick up a rifle once a year. So you go to your unit, you either select and you're very lucky and you get what you selected or you get what we call pinged, which is means you get selected 
to go on some sort of specialist training. And then you go back to your units. And then, yeah, it, it just depends what's going on. I, I started in 2001, February, and I passed out in October that year. So four weeks before I passed out was when 9-11 happened. So we're like, we're coming to the end of our training where everyone's excited. And I remember we were in the, the cafe on camp and then you just saw 9-11 happen. And we're all like looking at each other like, we're, we're, what we've just trained to do, we're going to be doing very quickly because there's been a terrorist attack. And, and that's what happened for me. You know, as soon as I passed out of training, early 2002, was trained. I was only 18 at the time, trained to go to Afghanistan on Operation Chicana. Didn't end up going. It, it, became, it got scaled right back and became like a special forces type thing. But then the year after, in 2003, when I was 19, I deployed to Iraq on Operation Telic One and was involved in that initial push over the, uh, the Kuwaiti Iraqi border and, and into Iraq. So it was pretty rapid for me from, from the get-go, you know, literally from all the way back to that first day yeah. in that foundation block at 17, everything was just rapid fire bum, yeah. bum, 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 yeah. throughout my whole career. It was insane. And how old were you when, when you first went to Iraq? 19. 19. That's still a kid. I, I know. I, I, I try so hard now, right? And I, and I always, I'll think it, but I'll never say it. I look at a lot of the, the you know, people now are in 19 and I'm always looking at them thinking, damn, I had a, a weapon as my best friend when I was 19. Now I'm running around a foreign country. I hadn't even been to Butlins before on my own, before I went to Iraq. You know what I mean? I'd never even been on holiday on yeah, my own. Yeah. My first time out of the country was in a war zone. Wow. It was crazy. So what was it like being in Iraq? When, when they said, right, you're going out to Iraq, what was your, what was your thought process? Honestly? Yeah. Initially, it was exciting. Yeah. Because I was young, I was testosterone fueled, and I was ego driven, and I thought I've just done all this training. Let's go kick some ass, yeah. you know. And you don't think about politics or any of the actual reasons why you're going. You just think I'm there for the lads, and I'm going to do my job. Yeah. And so I was excited, and when I got there, I was actually very disappointed. And and this, I mean, I don't know if disappointed is the right word, but I thought I was going to. Land in a helicopter yeah. with a bayonet in my teeth, yeah. run out, start crawling through the dirt, you know, avoiding bullets and, and you know, fist fighting with people like you see in the Rambo movie. <laughs> I did nothing for three and a half months. Wow. I got a suntan. I never fired a single round for my weapon. I had a lot of fun. I, you know, there were some bad times, you know, when we were getting missiles over us and we're in the, these uh, what we call nuclear and biological chemical warfare suits, thinking that your skin's going to start boiling off and everything. Wow. So was, there were some ropey times, but it wasn't what I thought. I thought I was going to be running around, kicking in doors, yeah. you know, and, and doing what, you know, I, I grew up in the nineties watching all the Arnie yeah. and Rambos yeah. and, and yeah, all that. Yeah, lot. Yeah. And I thought that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. I honestly thought that's what it was. And when I came back, I'm like, that was rubbish. Yeah. You know, I've been trained to, the, to be this elite soldier. I'm a Royal Marines commando. I've been to war. And it was boring. Right. Do you know what I mean? So I came back a little bit disillusioned with it all. So when you came back, back back to the camp, back training, and then what? What was the next step after that? So for me, you unit life can be pretty boring. Hmm. You, you literally, you get a lot of time off if you're not deployed. And then, you know, the, the unit would generally have a training schedule. So you could go on, you know, for example, one time I went on, a, on an exercise. We sailed from the UK to Virginia. And we 
basically practiced, we call it an exercise, uh, warfare around in Virginia with the Americans. I deployed to Norway and learned how to survive and fight in the Arctic. Wow. I, I boxed for a little bit. I thought this opportunity came up to, to box and represent the Royal Marines. I thought it would be, you know, two hours working out in the morning and then the rest of the time off. And yeah. I was vastly mistaken it was horrible like eight hours a day training i killed myself um i thought it was going to be a bit of time off yeah. but yeah there's always stuff to fill your time and then if you're proactive then you just put in requests to go on courses so right. you can you can become better educationally yeah. if you maybe need to up your grades educationally you can do that you can do career advancement courses so that when you're in the UK and there's no exercises, no deployments, no operations, you get a fair amount of time to to do what you want to a degree, you know? Tell me about uh, the Arctic training out there. Um, it was different. Yeah. And do you know what I love about the whole thing, about just the military and the Royal Marines is I'm a, I, I just love putting myself in situations where I can test myself. And I can learn things and I can make myself better as a human being. You know, I just always loved the idea of being able to survive anything. Mm. So when I went to the Arctic, you know, and sometimes it's like minus 31 degrees yeah. and you're, you're skiing and you're in these tents at night. And, you know, these are really harsh conditions where you could very realistically die. Yeah. But you've got this these expert instructors who are highly, highly trained in this environment, teaching you how to survive. And it's brilliant mm. because you just learn, you learn so much about yourself. You learn so much about your kit and equipment. You learn so much about improvising. And, you know, if, if you don't have the right bit of kit, okay, how can I achieve what I need to achieve, whether it be lighting a fire or navigating, whatever it is, but how can I do it with what I've got? And you become resourceful, you know? Man, that sounds unbelievable, man. What, I loved what, it. Well, yeah, I bet you did. I can see, I can see in your face. I can see yeah. it all coming back. It's great. What's a, what was the next step then after that? Did you get deployed to another foreign country? So I, I actually left the Marines in 2006. My, my eldest daughter, Kezia, was born in January 2005. So I left because I thought, you know, I've, I've got my beret. I've been to Iraq. This is all in my first four years. And it was quite rare to squeeze. I was quite lucky in that. Like I said, I was rapid fire. Bum, 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 yeah. bum. I managed to squeeze so much stuff in. So I thought, well, I can leave now in my first five years. Quite satisfied, actually, that I've done a lot. Yeah. I mean, sometimes people will do 20 years and not do as much as yeah. I managed to be able to do in five, just because of the way things worked out. So I left. You know, I thought I'd start a new career. I think I was 22 at this time, maybe, yeah, 22 years old. Um, Got a daughter now, you know, got to be responsible and, and be around more. So I put my notice in to leave. That didn't work out very well. I ended up separating from my daughter's mum. I went to South Africa for six weeks. I retrained as a bodyguard, came back home, started looking for work in the close protection world, took a job as a nightclub doorman, just as the, the SIA uh, industry, yeah. right? And the police were coming down heavy on doorman because the doorman of old, they had this reputation of being bullies and yeah. thugs yeah. and... So they were really clamping down on it. And, and I got in a lot of trouble and narrowly avoided going to prison. Yeah. I got in a, I was working as the head doorman on a, on a gay club yeah. at the front, you know, letting people in and out. And these travelers came and they started 
trouble and we ended up in a huge fight and you know we came off better off than they did which was great at the time but then later on got us in a bit of trouble so i'm there sleeping on my friend's sofa i've got these police buzzing around me and you know not knowing what's gonna happen with my future i don't see my daughter i'm I'm separated from from her mom and everything's going south quickly so i kind of i panicked and I ran back to the Marines. I went back to the career center. I'd been a civilian for less than a year, which meant I didn't have to go through all that training again. You just had to do the a shooting test, a fitness test and, and that kind of stuff. And then early 2007, I rejoined. How old were you in 2007? 20, I was 23 when I rejoined. So I rejoined in May. I turned 24 in July, yeah. 2007. And then I deployed to Afghanistan on the 7th of September. So wow. I was 24 by the time I'd gone to my, my second war zone. What was that like compared to Iraq? What I expected a war to be like. Um, really? You know, and, and I knew it was going to be because the pre-deployment training was so different. Okay. Like when I, I rejoined the Marines, went to my new unit, which was 40 Commando in Taunton, and it was just different. It was a lot more high tempo, aggressive, structured. And you just had that feeling that this was going to be a different war to, to the war in Iraq. And so we landed on September 7th in Camp Bastion, spent a couple of days getting our kit and equipment ready, you know, acclimatizing to the desert environment. And then like four days later, we jumped on the back of a tunic helicopter and flew out to a place called Ford Operating Base Robertson in helman province to start our sixth month tour on the, on the front line wow so they you mm. knew you were going to do six months out there yes yeah you so that's what you deployed out there for was a minimum of six um if everything went to plan it usually stretched a little bit more than that yeah. but now when you when you got deployed out what feel when you landed what feeling did you have were you ready for a battle yeah i was because it, it was a mix of emotions so Nothing in my personal life was going right. Yeah. So I needed to get away. I felt I needed some headspace, some separation from the UK and, and everyone at the time to get my head together and reprioritize where I was going to go in my life. But equally, I was excited to be back in uniform around those those blokes <laughs> and those high level yeah. kind of people that you know have got my back no matter what. Yeah. So it kind of came at the right time. And I thought, right, let's get out there. Let's go have a couple scraps for a couple months, you know, sort myself out and then come back. And then, and I didn't, I'll be honest with you, the first part of my career, I didn't take very seriously. I got what we call charged like yeah. three times, which is marched in front of the commanding officer and, and given a bollocking yeah. for, for fucking up. Yeah. But then I was like, right, when we come back from Afghan, I am taking this seriously. I'm planning out my career. I'm mapping it out. I'm making the calls that I need to make. I wanted to go and be a physical training instructor initially and just push for promotion, whereas before I didn't care about any of that stuff. Um, so I was just excited to be back in that environment with some structure and some routine and yeah. where I could build and grow. And, and then tell me what happened day to day out there in Afghan. <laughs> I, I couldn't because every day was different. Okay. Every, I mean, we had... So we were working out of a place called Ford Operating Base Robinson, which is probably, I think at the time it was the most southerly base in, in Helmand. And every day was different. You know, we would go out on patrols and we'd have missions, which would be anything from, you know, go out and 
just reassure the locals that you're there for them, give them some food and some water yeah. and try and win their hearts and minds. There's an enemy location here, go disrupt it right. and, and that kind of stuff. But then, you know, you could, you could be doing anything, eating, having a cup of tea, sleeping. And then all of a sudden, you know, you hear the whistle of a mortar bomb coming into wow. your position and then everyone's standing to and, and you're in a firefight, you know, stopping the enemy attacking your position. There, there was, there was, it was just different or every day was different. You know, some days you could go three or four days in a row without anything happening and you almost get bored. Yeah. And then the next time, you know, it's nonstop fighting, scrapping, defending yourself, taking the fight to the enemy, whatever it was. And what were the locals like towards you? I know you said you're feeding water and give them to you and try to, to try to warm them. There must be a load of locals are thinking, we don't like you lot being in our, in our country. What are you doing here? Yeah. I, from what I saw, it was a 50, 50 split. Okay. Some of them were grateful because we were providing them with security so they could earn a living and, and, you know, look after their families. And then 50% of them just wanted us gone, I think. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, I said it earlier, you know, when I was young, I didn't know why I was going there. I didn't care. I was there for my friends. But now when I always look back on it now, I get it. You know, imagine if a, a foreign army just came and in, invaded the UK now with guns and just said, get in your house. You'd be angry. Yeah, absolutely. Right? You'd be like, this is my, this is my country. You yeah. don't tell me what to do. Yeah. So I understand it now totally. The ones that were, you know, quite hostile towards us. But, you know, our overall objective, what was you know, reiterate to us time and time and time again was to win the hearts and minds of okay. the local population. It's not what a lot of people think. It's not about going out there and flexing our muscle. It's about going out there and actually helping people, you know, and giving them a better quality of life. And what's the, what's the, what are the rules about opening fire on someone? For us, yeah. I find it very frustrating. Yeah. And, I, and I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. So we have, they're called JSPs, right? And rules of engagement, what you can and can't do. And our rules of engagement would be different to the Americans, different to the Dutch, different to the French. But for us, unless you were fired upon effectively, then you couldn't do anything. So if you, you know, if, if I'm me and you're an enemy soldier and you walk up to me face to face with a hand grenade, you pull the pin out of that hand grenade, you're not a threat because there's a fly-off lever on there, right? Now, if you release the fly-off lever and drop that on my feet and you're looking at me, that's a threat. Yeah. But if you turn your back to me, you hold it behind you and then you drop it, that's class is not a threat because your back's to me. Right. So I can't do anything except for run. Right. Um, which, as you can imagine, is hugely frustrating. Yeah. Uh, especially when you know, you know, who these people are. You know, there was an incident... That I wrote about it in the book I wrote where this pickup truck was going past all day, every day. And we were, got, we were told, you can't do anything, you can't do anything, you can't do anything, even though we knew they were enemy. And then the day that we were told, right, it's confirmed, we know they're enemy now, you, you know, permission to engage. And they're always listening to, on radios. Yeah. There's like, a, everyone's listening to everyone's communications. Yeah. They come back in the truck, but they fill the back of it with kids because they know we're not going to do anything. Oh my God. So a lot of it was frustrating. Yeah. You know, you just, your hands are tied. And worse than that, you're, you're vulnerable yeah. because they know that, that you're not allowed to do that yeah. as well. Yeah. How you know? that? So yeah, it's crazy. Someone's got a gun towards you and you're going, mate, it's my life or your life. Boom. See you later. Who would know that you did that? And what are the ramifications afterwards for doing that? I don't know completely, but I would imagine there'd be an investigation process 
I mean, there's so many different scenarios you can run through. It would all be dealt with on a on a case by case basis, I imagine. But what I think we rely on heavily, especially the Royal Marines, is is integrity. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And and we're not that we're not there to, to it's so this is frustrating as well because you're trained to this level and there's this sort of reputation. A lot of people just think you're out there trigger happy cowboys, yeah. but we're not. We're professional soldiers. We're elite level professionals at what we do. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And um, so we were out there to, you know, we play by the rules all the time. Yeah. And and then how long were you out there for until the day? So I I deployed on the 7th of September and I was injured on Christmas Eve. So three months, just over three months. Can you talk me through that day, please? So we had been, due to manpower, we had been confined to our base for about a week. We couldn't leave and go out on any foot patrols because people had been ripped out of the unit to go and leave. People had been ripped out because they'd been injured. Um, nothing combat related, silly things like falling off of a truck and twisting their ankle and stuff like that. So our manpower was down. So when we got more men in and we could leave, we were tasked with going on a foot patrol. But the ironic thing was that before this, we would have a mission. We'd go out for however many hours, we'd push out however many miles, and then we'd come back. The idea of this, because they knew we were frustrated of being locked up, it was literally leave with two sections of eight men from the rear entrance of the camp, patrol around the immediate perimeter of the camp, RV back at the front entrance of the camp. RV and is... Rendezvous, so meet back yeah. up. Okay, yeah. So you've got left at the rear entrance, you RV at the front entrance, and then that's it. And it was literally a, just a play, just a way of getting us out for a bit, stretching our legs, showing the guy, the enemy, you know, it's always observing us that we're out there doing a job still because they saw we'd been confined and yeah. they knew something was up and then come back in. So, you know, the time came and they opened the rear, the rear gate of the camp. I was second in command of the section that went north. The other guys went south. And we, we just went out and, and did our basic patrols. We, we met a couple of civilians, you know, did the usual chit chat. You always got to look out for any suspicious sign of enemy activity, like little piles of rocks indicate where they buried IEDs. Right, okay. IED? Improvised explosive device. Okay. So if they dig them in to warn other Taliban members or civilians, they put little rock piles around as like an indicator. So we always have to look out for that, report that back if it's new. If there's any obvious signs that they've been digging in the ground, report, you know, just observing, reporting, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Basic, basic, what we call SOPs, standard operating procedures. So about five hours into this patrol, um, we get to the front entrance. So we're ready to finish up. My section, we're on a high piece of ground, like a ridge line. Just beneath us was the base that we were working out of. And then below that, just off the main dirt road that ran through the area was the other group of eight men that we left with earlier in the day. Now, because we're on this high feature, we can see everything around us. So tactically is an advantageous position to be in. It's a lot easier to fight going down a hill than it's up a hill. So we're a lot more protected than the other section are. So we get tasked with giving them what we call overwatch, which is uh, basically protection. So we'll get into positions, we'll observe, we'll protect them. They can get into the camp safely. They get behind the perimeter wall, they're safe. They return the favor. We peel in off this high feature and everyone's back in 
safe and sound. So the section commander uh, takes half of the section and starts giving them fire positions and what we call areas of responsibility to observe. I get the other half and right in front of me was like a shallow bowl in the ground. Now, normally if you're out foot patrolling and you go farm, so you stop, you want to get behind a wall or a building or a tree or a rock or, or a shrub, anything that's going to give you some sort of cover from view and cover from fire. But we didn't have many options because we're up on this high feature. It's like a ridge line. We didn't have anything like that. So I thought if we jump in this little bowl in the ground, we get on our bellies, we're going to be very well protected because yeah. especially because we're so high up. So we jump in, you know, the lads start taking their fire positions. I had already selected a position for myself kind of halfway between the, the split of the section. And I stood back and observed for a little while while everyone was getting ready um, until they were happy. When they were happy, they gave me the thumbs up. And then when I was happy, I started slowly walking over towards the position that I'd picked for myself. And as I went to get down onto my belly, I put my right knee on the floor and I knelt on and detonated an improvised explosive device. Wow. What do you remember? Everything. Everything. Up until the point the helicopter landed. You want me to talk you through it? If you're, com if you're comfortable with it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So you've got to imagine the terrain in Afghanistan, right? It's very sandy, very dusty. Yeah. So when this improvised explosive device exploded, it created a huge dust cloud, right? So, and I, I felt no pain. I was blinded by the dust cloud and in, and in no pain. So I thought my gut instinct was we've been attacked. Someone's fired a mortar on us, an RPG, a Chinese rocket, whatever it is. They've tried to hit us. It's detonated close by. That's what the explosion was. That's why the dust clouds here. Yeah. We need to get into, you know, this a position now to fight and, and tactically withdraw, get somewhere safe where we've got cover and take out the enemy and neutralize them. Now I knew from where I was that about 600 meters behind me, down beneath us where the other section were, there was a small rectangular forestry block. Everything else around it was flat mud fields. So in all this chaos, you know, and still not being able to see, I thought to myself, if you're going to attack us, you know, and I knew the terrain, I had three months of, of working in there. I knew that that was the most likely place that an attack would come from. So in my mind, I started saying, turn around, turn around. You know, my, you got to imagine your adrenaline spiked and everything, your fighting flights kicked in. But in my mind, I'm saying, turn around, Mark, turn around, crawl up to a position, get in cover, ID where the, the forestry block is and just start shooting. You know, we had this massive heavy machine gun about 200 meters away in camp. And I thought if I can get on target, someone will see that and then they can just, you know, mow the whole forest down and neutralize the threat. Yeah. So after about five times, in my mind of saying, turn around, turn around, turn around. I realized that although my brain was telling my body to do something, that my body wasn't responding. And I didn't know why, you know? So I did the only thing that I could. And I thought, I'll wait, I'll wait till this dust cloud settles. I will visually see what's going on, make more sense of it, make some very quick calls on the ground and then figure out what we're going to do to get everyone out safely. So it got to about chest height. 
and I'm looking around, you know, I'm panicking, just worried that some of my friends might have been hurt or killed in this attack. I can't see anybody and they must have been blasted out of the area. So I carry on waiting. And then as the dust cloud gets to about six inches from the floor, it starts to, to dissipate and to disappear. And as it did, I looked down to where my legs should have been and they had both been completely ripped off from the knees down. Any, anyone listening to this who's ever been in a, in a traumatic accident, a car crash, whatever it is, will understand this. It's very surreal, you know, because there's no pain. And I think your brain really struggles to process what it is it's looking at. And so I just sat there kind of looking like, talking to myself like what what am I looking at I don't understand this doesn't make sense why why am I leg what what's going on you know what I mean trying to figure it out and probably about three seconds into it I, I snapped out of it really quickly because I thought about the rest of the lads mm. and so I just chose to ignore it because I thought it's not real you know I'm just something's going wrong but I can't figure it out I'll figure it out later so I start looking around trying to see the rest of the section and I looked over my right shoulder and I saw the section commander, uh, Corporal Housby, who had gone through training with me back in 2001. I'd known him for a long time. And I looked at his face and, you know, he was clearly in shock at what he was looking at, which kind of, you know, in, in all this chaos that's going on, and, you know, I'm, I'm worrying now about a, a follow-up attack from the enemy and all sorts of stuff. I looked at his face and thought, maybe what I just saw is actually happening. Something's wrong because I'm just looking in his eyes and he looks like, like he's seen a ghost. Yeah. So I go to look back at my legs. Just, I don't, I don't really know why. I guess maybe just to give myself that final, actually Mark, this is happening yeah. kind of signal so I can do something about it. And as I sweep the floor with my eyes, I get to like the three o'clock position and I saw my arm just lying there in the sand. Oh, right. Now it was still attached, but from my bicep to my wrist, it, the whole thing had been ripped open. You know, there was there was no bone in there. The bone had been completely shattered. It, it just looked like a bunch of Rottweilers had been chewing on a limb. It was just a mess. There was flesh and, and blood and muscle just hanging out everywhere. But my hand was okay. Now, I remember I, I picked my hand up and I kind of just held it in front of my face and twisted it slightly for some reason dropped it into the sand and just let out this massive scream like out of frustration when I, when it all kind of came crashing down at once, this is all within like probably less than 10 seconds. Yeah. yeah. As I all realized, fuck you've, you've stood an IED. We're not under attack. You've been blown up by an improvised explosive device and you're probably going to die now at 24 years old in the middle of the Afghan desert. And the reason that I thought that initially is, and this sounds weird, but there is a definite good reason behind this, but we're, we're trained in that situation, the rest of the section, not to come running in to help me. Because if there are other devices around me, which there were, there were seven more, they risk setting them off and either killing me or killing themselves. Yeah. So there are set procedures that you have to go through. Everyone's got a, a responsibility of, of what they've got to do in that situation. So I knew no one was going to be getting to me quick and I'm pissing out blood and fluid and, and start, you know, all this kind of stuff and feeling weak and just 
hopeless, you know, thinking this is, this is it for me. Now, my helmet in the, in the blast had been knocked to the back of my head and my chin strap was up under my nose. So I, I found it really difficult to breathe. So I took it off and I threw it over. And this little bowl that we were in, I've, I've read the, the report that was written afterwards. And I think it was 12 feet deep by 15 feet around after the explosion. So it's not the easiest place to evacuate me from anyway. Yeah, yeah. So I took my helmet off and I threw it and I slumped back against the incline. And I wasn't in any pain, just, just discomfort. And I closed my eyes and the sun was beating down on my face. And I just pretended that I was in, in, a, in Spain on the beach, yeah. just chilling out. And I started to get very tired and very weak. And I thought, well, all that's going to happen is I'm going to fall asleep now, but this time I'm not going to wake up. Yeah. You know, it was very peaceful. And I actually felt at peace with it because I just thought, you know, when the news gets back that I've died in combat, you know, my daughter hopefully will be proud of me. For, for sacrificing for something bigger than me. I'll get, you know, a full military funeral and all the good stuff that comes with that. And, and I've died doing something honorable. And I was at peace with it, you know, and I was good to go. But the lads weren't. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the machine kicked in. And, uh, you know, the, when you train to do this stuff and you run through it time and time again, you'll fuck it up eight times out of 10. But when you need to do it, it is seamless. Yeah. And these lads were phenomenal. Yeah. And no one panicked, no one flapped, no one got emotional and did what they weren't trained to do. Yeah. Everyone did everything perfectly. Yeah. And the medic got to me really quickly and he jumped in this crater that I was in and he gave me morphine and he put tourniquets on my, on my damaged limbs and he pulled out a stretcher, which was like a, a canvas, like a bed sheet with handles on it. Now, I didn't feel any pain to this point, right? And he hooked his, his arms under my armpits and he dragged me onto the stretcher. And I felt like what I imagine it would feel like if you took a screwdriver and you put it under someone's kneecap and you started ratcheting down on their kneecap, that's what I imagine it would feel like. This is the pain that I felt. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I asked him to put me down and I looked down to where the pain came from. And coming out of my right thigh was like a, it looked like a thin red piece of rope covered in dust and, and sand and all that kind of stuff. And so I followed it as it snaked in the, in the sand, in the dirt, and it went into a boot, into my boot. So I don't know why, but I picked the boot up. I had a look inside and that, my foot was still in the boot. And I guess this, this thin piece of string was like a, a nerve or a tendon. So where he had dragged me and the weight of the foot and yeah. boot had, I'd kept, he'd, he'd stretched his tendon. Yeah. So he then had to take this foot, put it on my belly, evacuate me off this, out of this crater, off this high feature, put me in the back of a vehicle. Then as the vehicle's driving up the incline to go back into the camp to where the helicopter was going to meet me, th these are not tarmac roads. Right. The, you, you think we have potholes in the UK, you want to try driving on a sandy, dusty Afghan road. Yeah. So you have to be aggressive when you drive. So the guy's driving, he's steering left and right, he's accelerating hard. And we get to a point where he hits the accelerator and the medic fell out the back. Now I go tumbling out after him, but as I get halfway out, the driver swung around, reached out and grabbed for anything that he could to hold me in. And he ended up grabbing my femur bone that was poking out of my right leg. 
Jesus Christ. Right. No, I, I didn't feel any pain because I was on morphine. He left the medic, which was fine because that other section we went out with, they were still at the bottom of this incline. So you had eight heavily armed men to look after this guy. They drove me to the helicopter landing site. And the last thing I remember is this helicopter landing, the, the sandstorm that gets created from the propeller blades, the heat that comes from the exhaust, and then the, the sound of the tailgate dropping. And as that, as I heard that drop, I, I blacked out then. Um, and that was the last thing I remember. Wow. 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 Mm. Wow. And then what, where did the helicopter take you? So here, here's what happened, right? And, and this is because I know this because I've met the entire medical team since. So they throw me on the back. There's another guy injured in the blast who had shrapnel injuries to his back and his upper arm, right? So it wasn't life-threatening. And the way you prioritize casualties in this situation in, in a wartime environment is if you have a guy that's dead and a guy that's dying, as harsh as it sounds, you just have to leave the dead guy because you might have two dead guys if you don't prioritize the other one. Yeah. So they felt for a pulse and I didn't have one. They couldn't get any intravenous lines into me because all my veins had collapsed because of the blood loss. And where they put an oxygen mask on me, it should have steamed up inside to show if I was yeah. breathing. Yeah. But I had none of that. So they literally, and they, these guys are working at hundred mile an hour. So they have to make decisions quick. So they said, right, he's dead. Leave him over there. Let's go work on this guy. Luckily, one of the medics walked past me to get some equipment to go back to my friend Milky. And he said he saw my eye flutter, which meant that my heart was beating. Yeah. So he called a couple of the other guys. They all came to work on me. And three days before this incident, whoever's in charge of the, the army or the military medical world had given the green light for this new technique to be used where if you can't get intravenous lines into somebody's veins, you drill into their tibia and their fibia. Problem being, yeah. I no longer had a tibia yeah. or a fibia on either leg because both of them have been clean ripped off. Yeah. So they didn't know what to do. You know, Not only had they never used this technique before, but now they were going to have to try and use it without the two main bones they needed to do it. Mm. So they decided that they would try and do replicate that technique in my hip. So they drilled in once and the line didn't bite. They said that my skin was too loose. So they tightened it up. They stretched it. They drilled in again, said the second time it bit, they got fluids into me. And about three minutes later, I was awake and responsive and, and answering their questions. Um, so they brought me back <clears throat> from the dead. They flew me back to Camp Bastion, where we had originally spent those first four days. They took me to the field hospital. The surgeons did an assessment of the damage to my limbs and they amputated uh, both my legs above the knee and my right arm above the elbow. Then they sent me home. I arrived in, in Selly Oak Hospital in Birmingham at about four o'clock in the morning on Christmas Day. Mate, I'm lost for words if I'm honest with you. <laughs> um, and then when you got to Birmingham, what, what, what were the next, how long were you looked after for? Uh, what were the next steps? So I spent three days unconscious in a coma, drug-induced coma. Uh, then another four days when they woke me up on the intensive care ward. I had to have round-the-clock medical care because there was a lot of, of sand and dust that was blasted up into my open wounds. I had chunks of flesh missing all over my body that had been uh, just covered in dirt. You know, there's, there's lots of diseases and, and yeah. stuff and all that. 
So I had a high risk of infection. So they monitored me around the clock for that first week. When they said I was safe to move, they moved me upstairs into the Burns and Plastics ward. And that's when they gradually started really properly pulling me out of this drug-induced haze that I was in and introduced me back to the real world. And then I started the long road to recovery a week later. What year was this? So now we're in January 2008. 2008. Yeah, I remember I had... I had about three sips of a can of Fosters on New Year's <laughs> Eve in intensive care and then moved up to the Bones of Plastics Ward January 2008. And how long were you How long were you in intensive care for? before? And did you move straight back to Plymouth? No. Nope. Um, like I said, I got to Birmingham Christmas Day. Yeah. I did a week in intensive care and then five weeks up in the Bones of Plastics Ward recovering, doing some light physiotherapy. Um, I, I had about three more what they call cleanup operations where they go in and they just, they scrub like with a brush all the dirt and stuff out of your open wounds. And I think they call it debridling or something, yeah. just making sure that it's clean and you're not going to get any infections later on and then cause you to have further surgeries down the line. Yeah. And then what was the rehab after that? So after six weeks in hospital, they moved me to a place called Headley Court, which is just on the outskirts of uh, London in Surrey in place called Leatherhead. It's, it's yeah. shut down now. They've changed it all. But we went to there, um, which is when I was eventually going to be issued with my prosthetics and start relearning to, to walk again yeah. and trying to regain my independence. And then what was the what was the next step then for, for getting, I've seen you now, obviously with the legs and uh, doing everything around the house and the videos and do, how long did it take to start to walk again? So initially it was really frustrating because, you know, I've got, a big chunk of flesh missing out on my left thigh, my inner thigh, burns all up my back. You know, my arm wasn't healed properly. So as keen as I was to get into prosthetics straight away, I risked further injuring myself because I hadn't healed properly. So I had to spend the first month maybe just doing rehab from a wheelchair, strengthening my core, my hips, my lower back, because I no longer had the big muscles that, able-bodied people used to drive their walking so i had to retrain everything and then i eventually got given my prosthetic legs and it was an eye-opener because i went into it again a little bit egotistical yeah. you know i'm thinking i'm a royal marine i'm fitter than most people just give me the legs and get out of my way yeah and the first time i put them on first of all just to stand up yeah. i absolutely shit my pants yeah. because it was like to me it was the equivalent of being stood on top of mount everest like you, you're up there and you've got these false legs underneath you and you're kind of swaying around. You're in parallel bars, so you're kind of safe, but I only had the one arm to use, which if you can see the scar on my hand, it was still, that was from a big chunk of shrapnel. So I only had like two fingers to play with yeah. initially. Yeah. Um, and then I started walking and I did, I walked up the parallel bars and back and I was done. I was wiped out. It just, it killed me. Like the energy, it takes a bilateral above the amputee anywhere between 300 and 500% more energy to do anything. And I didn't know that at the time. So I was like, give me the legs, get yeah. out of the way. I'm yeah. fit. Yeah. And it, and I went back to my room after that and I had a serious word of myself. And I thought that you can't just be an arrogant, yeah. egotistical asshole here. You've got to take this seriously and you're going to have to make a lot of changes to your entire life, right? If you want to, if you want to dominate this and, and get your independence back. Mm you know, everything. So I did, 
you know, I, I started setting myself goals from the first day that I got there. My first goal was to to walk at the Meadows Parade when my unit got back. So I, I got to Headley Court in February 2008. Yeah. They were still in Afghanistan. They still had another month to serve. Yeah. Then they came home for 10 weeks, what we call post-operational tour leave. Then they came back to the unit and started preparing for the the day. Yeah. So it was it was it was within six months um, that I set myself a goal to to walk on the parade ground and to stand shoulder to shoulder with the lads and get my medal that way. I didn't want to go in a wheelchair. Yeah. Um, so I just started kicking my ass every day in rehab, yeah. and it was ugly. It was it didn't look pretty the way I was walking. I didn't care. I was using a walking stick. It took me a long time to actually just get to that level. But having that goal really helped me focus. And I didn't want to let the lads down. I didn't want to let my family down. I didn't want to let their families down. Yeah. You know, and in the back of my mind, all I kept thinking was, you know, and there's media there and all that kind of stuff. And I just thought I'm going to show the world what being a Royal Marine is about. Yeah, mate. Right. And you face adversity, challenges, difficulties. They put mountains in your way. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Right. I'll figure it out. I'll get the good people around me. I'll set a goal, develop a plan, and then just be relentless in the pursuit of that goal and show everybody that as difficult as it is, I've still got that Royal Marines mindset and those values and those standards and that work ethic. I'm, and I'm going to do it. Wow. So I just hammered myself. And what made it more difficult was that I was the first triple amputee through the rehab system, I think since the end of the Second World War. So no one not to do with me. Yeah. We've yeah. had amputees before, but not to my level, because unfortunately, you know, guys that were injured like me prior hadn't survived. Um, so yeah, it was it was just constantly like headbutting a brick wall, trying to figure stuff out. But I had great people around me, yeah. you know, and, and they were they kind of bought into my vision, you know, and um what it was that I wanted to achieve. So we just, we were just relentless with it, just pushing and pushing and pushing, trying to figure stuff out as we go. It was frustrating. There were, there were times when I, you know, was in tears, yeah, just, yeah. just frustrated about, you know, cause I used to live my, I still do, but used to live my life when I was able-bodied at 150 mile an hour and I'm used to getting things done quickly. Yeah. And now my entire life had been slowed down and I wasn't moving quick enough. I wanted to be faster, 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 faster yeah. onto the next thing. So again, that's what I mean. I had to change my life holistically, my mindset, my diet, my training regime, everything to live this new kind of life. How long did it take to you could use, just walk anywhere you want to go, do whatever you wanted to do? I'd, I'd say realistically, 12 months. I'll give you a, an exact date. The yeah. 9th of June, 2009. Yep. This is another part of the story. I flew out to America because I was the UK's first triple amputee. I found a guy in America who was missing three limbs, who was absolutely dominating it. Brilliant. So I went out to meet him. I flew out. I went AWOL from the military. Uh, they didn't want me to go, but I, I knew I needed to. So I flew out there on the 9th of June, 2009. And that was the last time I ever used a wheelchair. So that's the, that's the day I kind of mark as yeah. my independence day, if you like. Yeah. Um, just went out there. They they whipped my ass yeah. like for three weeks and were relentless for me about, about being independent and trying to navigate the world without all these adaptive things, without lifts, car adaptions, wheelchairs, crutches, sticks, all that kind of stuff. You know, these guys have spent, I think seven years working with this other amputee to get him to the high level he was at. And they had to condense that into three weeks to try and yeah. teach me. 
but it changed my life. Yeah, I bet it did. It, it changed my life. 9th of June 2009 is a date that just is with me mm. forever. That's that's my Independence Day. Amazing, mate. God, you've got some powerful mind, Mark. You, you've got to have. Yeah. If you're, you imagine being 24 years old yeah. and imagining the rest of your life like sat in a wheelchair with one arm. I've gone from six foot two, 16 stone, an elite Royal Marines commando yeah. at the peak of my physical fitness. You know, in, in my mind, an alpha male, you know, one of the lads to, you know, someone who was four foot three without prosthetics at the early stages of my recovery, nine stone four, wow. who took about 45 minutes to have a shit. Yeah. And I mean, I thought there's no way I'm spending the next 78 years of my life like this. Yeah. And what really excited me was when I, when I met, like when I saw like this guy Cameron in America and I, as soon as I saw it, you know, a guy with the same injuries as me doing stuff, I knew I could do it. Yeah. All I had to do was copy yeah. what he did physically yeah. and mentally, yeah. you know, how he thought, how he acted and I could do the same thing. Yeah. And these guys were willing to take me in and help me. So I just grabbed the opportunity and went over there and did it. And yeah, it, like I said, it, it changed my life and, and took me to the next level. Superman. That's all I can say. Unbelievable. Tell us, tell us the next, tell us the next phase then. Tell us about the Olympics 2012. Tell us about the Paralympics. Tell us about this most amazing journey you've been on. Tell us about your book. Tell us about, tell me more. I'll try and do it chronologically, right? So initially with the book, you know, I was going through rehab and in the evenings when everyone was done and they had their evening meal, they would go in like the, it was like the rec room, if you like. And they would get on the Playstations and the Xboxes. I've only got one hand. Yeah. So that was, I'm like, I can't do any of that. I can't play games with one hand. Yeah. So I was bored most evenings. And I, I had some media stuff going on because I was the, the first triple that survived there. There was some interest around it. And I developed a relationship with a journalist. And we said we were doing something for the news of the world, I think, at the time. And I just said in jest, oh, we should write a book. Yeah. And he's like, I'm up for it if you are. So I'm like, all right, sweet. So we spent the evenings. <laughs> he would call me up in the evenings when everyone else was on the playstations and everything. And we would just, I would dictate, you know, chapter by chapter this book. And then eventually about 10 months later, we put it in a chronological order, got a publishing deal, which was amazing because it was at the recession 2009. Yeah. And this massive publisher was only giving out three contracts the entire year. And ours was one of them. Yeah. So we got this book done. Which Name of the book? Man Down. I got one here actually, because I'm just editing it and, Audio recording it. Quality, mate. So um, just about to finish the second one, actually, now. Yeah. But yeah, we did that. Something I never thought I'd do. Uh, that led on to becoming a speaker. And I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. Like, you can get paid to do that. Yeah. And so I'd spent the last eight or nine years traveling around the world as a speaker. You know, I've had two more children since since all the, all the old-fashioned way. Everything's all good to go down there. Is Nothing it? got blown off or all the plumbing's still working. <laughs> um, that's, that's, that's all good. <laughs> right result. And just, yeah. And just did some amazing things. You know, um, I spent the last 10 years working for a charity called the Royal Marines Charity. I just left this year yep. from that to do my own thing. And yeah, things like the Invictus Games. Yeah, tell me. Invictus you know, Games, Prince Harry, talk to me. Do you know what, mate? This is hilarious. And I don't know if this is just my experience, yeah. but I found when I first got injured, everyone would 
if it was a stranger, someone I was meeting for the first time, they'd all come up and they'd shake my hand and they'd go, so when are you training for the Paralympics, Mark? And I'm like, I'm not. Why, why would I do that? Yeah. Like, is, is it, do you have to, if you're disabled? Yeah. I don't get yeah, what, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Every, everyone was saying it to me. I'm like, I don't want to do the Paralympics. Yeah. It's rubbish. Yeah. I, I used to kickbox, tie box, but I, they don't do that in the Paralympics. Yeah. You've got to do jump over a sand pit or something. I don't want to do that. Yeah. So I, I didn't do any of it. And my initial main aim was to, like we talked about earlier, get rid of that wheelchair yeah. and just be a full-time prosthetic user. So I, that was never on my radar. And then Christmas 2016, I was sat right here at this table in my office at home. And I always draft out my goals for the following year. And I got halfway through it. And I, I started thinking like 2017, Christmas Eve, is my 10-year anniversary. Yeah. It's going to be 10 years since it got blown up. Why don't we do something that we haven't done yet? You know, and I'd never done any sport, any adaptive para sport at all in my whole recovery. And the Invictus Games was two years old. And I'd seen my friends go there and compete. And not only were they winning medals, some of them, but what really got me about it is, is outside of that environment, I saw the positive impact that it had on their lives and their confidence and everything about them. Do you know what I mean? And I, and I realized the power of sport. So I thought, you know what? I'll apply for that. I don't want to do, I don't want to, excuse the pun, but I don't want to dip my toe in the water yeah. with some like local club level stuff. Yeah. Let's just jump in at the deep end with all these guys. And I honestly thought I had zero chance of even making the team because I, I didn't have, I was in none of those sporting cliques. I had never done any of the, the events before. I had no idea about the etiquette or any of this kind of mm. stuff that, that came along with power sport. But I just went in and thought I'd give it a shot. Mm. And I was fortunate enough the first year out of 650 applicants, they, they'll only pick 72 for the team. And, and it was, it was brutal. Mm. Not only do you have to, that there were 11 different selection criteria that you had to pass to be in the team. It wasn't just, Oh, he's the best athlete. We'll yeah. take him. Yeah. They check your social media. They, 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 so there's what, there was one point, right. When I was swimming, and there was, we come out the swimming pool, we were training for, this is just for the trial phase to make the team. And there was another guy who had just lost both his legs. And we were, we take longer to get dressed than everyone else. Yeah. So we we're in the changing room chatting and he was asking me some questions about how to use the legs and, you know, do you get sore spot? And I just sat there chatting with him, right? Giving him a bit of help and advice on the things that I'd learned and been taught. I didn't know that one of the coaches was outside listening. Yeah. And part of the selection process is, are you a team player? Yeah. And he and he heard that. It was nothing to do with the sport. It was only me and this other guy in the change room. And he put me down as a, a 10 out of 10 on that because I didn't even know that was part of the yeah. criteria. Yeah, but, so they're always they're always watching yeah, you. You yeah, have to yeah, be yeah. more than an athlete. They have to make sure that you're going to represent the country correctly. Where was Invictus Games? The first year I did it, it was in Canada. The second year was Australia. Oh, lovely. Yeah. And how long are you there for on each one? Uh, maybe two weeks, I think. Yeah. But as, as much as I enjoyed it, at the same time, I kind of, if I was ever to do it again, I would do it differently. Because in Canada, I did indoor rowing, hand cycling and swimming. So I literally competed every day. Yeah. In Australia, it was the same. It was uh, swimming, rowing, shot put and discus. So out of the, the week-long competition, I never had a day off. Literally, I'd finish one event, 
go back to my hotel room and then start mentally prepping for the yeah. next day's event, stretching off from there and then getting my, myself in the headspace, visualizing winning, yeah. you know, visualizing the crowd and the yeah. environment and the arena, go out and wreck the arena, make sure I've got a clear picture of what it's going to look like yeah. in my head. And there's no, I had no downtime two years in a row. Some people would turn up and they would maybe do shot put and discuss yeah. and, if they were lucky, that would be on the first day. Yeah. So they get six days off. Yeah, they yeah, get yeah. a six-day holiday. Yeah. But I just, I thought I'm only going to do this. Initially, I only wanted to do it once. So I thought I'm just going to go for everything, fill every day and just go at 100,000 mile an hour. <laughs> I love it. In, in sixth gear and just try and destroy everything and yeah. just come back and do do something different. Did you did you get any medals? I got 11 in total. Did you? Quality. So the first, I got two silvers and two bronzes in the first year. Which was great, yeah. But what was better than that? I mean, they're just over there now yeah. on the side. But out of, and I didn't know this. I t- can I tell you a funny story, mate? Yes, go for right. it. So I got a bit of a sad on the first year, right? My my whole mindset was I'm going to turn up there and I'm going to tear it up. I'm going to get all the gold medals. I'm going to drop the mic and say <laughs> later's and I walk out. Right? <laughs> that was it. my that was my mindset. <laughs> and I came back with two silvers and two bronzes. So I, I was pissed off, yeah. right? And you have an opening ceremony and a closing ceremony. And I was in a bit of a, a half. I'd throw my dummy out my pram. Yeah. And, and I was like, right, I'm not going to the closing ceremony. I'm going to get a pizza. Die Hard was on the TV. So I thought I'm going to spend the night with John McClane and a pepperoni <laughs> pizza. Now, my family were in another hotel and they were getting a separate bus. And I thought, they're going to get there and they're going to see I'm not there. So, you know, my two youngest kids were there and yeah. I thought I've, I've got to go. Yeah. So a last minute.com threw my legs on, got on a coach and went down there. Now, what I didn't know was that at the closing ceremonies, they have these awards. You have one award for the, the best overall country. Mm. I think there were 12 different countries at the time. And then one award for the best overall athlete. So every athlete from every country, they'll pick one person. Yeah. Now, I was actually making a documentary at the same time. So I'm sat there and I've got this gimbal and this GoPro and I'm filming this whole thing and Bruce Springsteen's rocking out on stage and everything. <laughs> and and then they start announcing this award, right? And I had zero idea about, I didn't even know what it was, right? And I start here, they're rattling off this bio. They're like, right, and the award for the best athlete is for, and the first thing they said was, a Royal Marine. So my ears pricked up and I'm like, yes, one of my lads has got it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? One of the Royal Marines has yeah. got this. And then they start continuing the bio and they're like, this man is a triple amputee. And I'm like, shit, I think I'm the only triple amputee Royal Marine here. And I've got this gimbal and I'm trying to film this. And as I, as I was saying it, I'm getting more and more embarrassed. Like, are they talking? And then the girl next to me nudges me. She's like, they're talking about you, Mark. And I'm like, are they? And so I'm trying to film and then I'm like the shocker capture. I'm like, no one's told me about this. No one said, oh, Mark, just so you know, you're going to get this award. And I'm filming a documentary. So yeah, I ended up getting this award. Well, I didn't even know it existed. And I had only just got on the coach 30 seconds before yes. it left. I wasn't even going to go. Mentally. So they could have they could have announced that and then be like, where's Mark? And I'm back at my hotel watching <laughs> Die Hard eating pizza. So yeah, it was, it was lucky I got on, but I went back the next year. Because I I couldn't I I couldn't let it rest yeah. that I didn't get any gold medals, yeah. and so I got my mate to make a frame up, and he put the silvers and the bronzes in. I put it in my garage in front of my handbike and rowing machine, and I spent like the best part of a year 
getting up at five in the morning, doing cardio, staring at the empty slots where the gold medal yeah. should be and just training. I reapplied, was lucky enough to make the team again, went to Australia. And then I think I came back from Australia with four golds, two bronzes and a silver. Yes, mate. Quality. Uh, yeah. And then I dropped the mic and dropped left. Dropped the mic. I was like, <laughs> done. That's Job amazing, done. mate. Well done. That is brilliant. Thank you. What's the, uh, what's you. the next step for you? Are you going to, are, uh, are they doing a movie? Yeah, they are. I'm actually going to be up your way. Um, I think you know David and Lynn Coleman. Yep. They're, they're working with me on the movie. Um, we signed the contracts about 12 months ago, right before COVID hit. So we're finishing off the second book right now. We are we're planning the movie as much as we can, given the restrictions that yeah. are around. I've got you know, a couple of my, my personal things going on in the, in the property world. Yeah. Still doing a bit of speaking, that kind of stuff. Uh, and like I said, I, I just left my job with the Royal Marines charity at the beginning of this year because I'm now a trustee of a, another charity called Reorg, which yeah. is to do with uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So I'm, I'm training that at the minute. I'm a blue belt right now. Wow. So follow on busy, you know, all the time. Just um, trying to keep growing, keep yeah. moving forward, keep progressing. And I, I feel like in all the years since I've been injured, yeah. I don't, I don't say this in, in an arrogant way when I say the word mastery, yeah. but I've kind of, I feel like I've mastered prosthetics, yeah. um, not, not mastered personal development, but every, all the goal areas I set myself, I've kind of took them to the top. The one thing that I haven't really achieved success how I want to in is business. Yeah. And I really want to show the world, I think, that even though I've just got one hand yeah. because of the technology we have, you know, you can run a business from a smartphone. Yeah all the information's out there on the internet you need to be successful in property yeah. whatever it is you do drop shipping whatever it is yeah. speaking you don't need to be able-bodied I, if I, i'm going to try and do this just with one hand yes. you know and be massively successful and say look there, there's no excuses yeah you know I mean? not in a, again not in an arrogant way no, no, in, in, no, no, i'm no. trying to do it in a motivational way it was yeah. to say if you're doubting yourself and you think you can't i've figured this out yeah. you know I, mean, I don't have the, the luxury of all four of my limbs but I just used the resources that I had at my availability and figured it out. Yeah. So that's what I want to do now is just be, you know, reach a massive level of success in that and, uh, and, and keep contributing. Yeah. Just absolutely. keep contributing. Oh, you are one inspirational bloke. Thank you, man. Appreciate really it. You are, man. And you're an absolute legend in my eyes. And I thoroughly enjoyed this. I could go on for speaking three, four hours, carry on the stories. <laughs> I'm sure there's loads of stories, but mate, I thoroughly enjoyed this. You're an absolute oh, thank you. legend of a human being, mate, and I've got utmost respect for you, and I'm looking forward to staying in touch for many years. Absolutely. Sure. You're a gentleman, mate. You take care, Mark. Thank you ever so much. Thanks, Dodge. Cheers, mate. Cheers, buddy. Thanks for listening to The Eventful Entrepreneur. Join the conversation today. Review and subscribe for free on iTunes now.